songs this morning make me cry in my heart. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to encourage you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. This morning I'll be preaching from verses 31 through 35. John, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord, John 13, 31 through 35. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, as we come to this moment in worship of the proclamation of your word, please give us eyes to see your glory. Grant us ears that will hear your word. And grant us hearts that will bend to your will, be filled with your love, and share that love with one another. Grant this, Father, we pray. Amen. The final job that my father had before he retired was the superintendent of water and wastewater for the city of Athens. He worked with the Athens Utility Board in a supervisory role. He oversaw those two areas. And it always feels weird to say my dad oversaw the sewer, but that's what he did for a long time. I found out that dad always had the same speech whenever he hired a new employee. The very first day of that employee's work, he would call the employee in into his office. And my dad, in his very forthright manner, would tell that employee that there were only two things that that person would need to remember to succeed in working for him. He said the very first thing is this. Dad would say, remember that I am your boss. The second thing is always to remember that water and sewer never run uphill. Those two things, you'll be all right. Dad liked to keep things simple. And in like manner, that's what Jesus does here. As Judas exits the upper room to betray him, Jesus focuses on two things, glory and love. And really, those two things set the stage, the main themes for what he will be teaching the disciples over the next few chapters that we dive into. The glory is focused on in verses 31 through 32. And there is an immediacy to what Jesus is saying. When Judas leaves, Jesus begins teaching the remaining disciples by saying, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now speaks of an immediate moment. 
Starting in John chapter 12, Jesus said, now is the hour. And now with Judas leaving, things are set in motion, things that will not stop. The dominoes have begun to fall. And they will culminate in his crucifixion. So Jesus speaks with a pointed immediacy that now the Son of Man is glorified. And notice this sense of immediacy continues at the end of verse 32. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He is speaking of the glory that will be revealed on the cross. The glory is referenced in the way Jesus refers to himself in verse 31 as the Son of Man. This is not the first time Jesus has used this Old Testament description of the Messiah in reference to himself. Daniel chapter 7 describes the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days. And Jesus takes this, this name to himself and says that he is this Son of Man. But the unique twist that Jesus gives is this. The Son of Man in the Old Testament is focused upon one who contains glory, authority, and power. Jesus doesn't deny that, but he adds to it sacrifice. That the Son of Man is one who will display the glory, power, and authority through the cross. That is the irony of what Jesus says here. He says the greatest display of God's glory will be in the deepest shame of the cross. And Jesus speaks not only of God's glory, but his glory also. The two are interconnected. You cannot speak of glorifying God without glorifying Christ. Nor can one glorify Jesus without glorifying God. Now this begs us to ask some questions. First, what is meant by glory? It's a very important question for this passage because you'll notice how often glory or a form of glory is mentioned in two verses. Now is the Son of Man glorified. God is glorified in Him. God is glorified in Him. God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. You can't read these two verses without stopping to ask, what is meant by glorify? Along those lines, we also need to ask, how does the cross glorify God and Jesus? How does this symbol of shame lift up who God is? And finally, we need to ask, why does it matter? Why is it important that Jesus, on the eve of his death, mentions the glory of God and his glory? Why is this important to us? With the first question, what is glory, I would answer this. Glory is the revelation and the demonstration of the power, authority, and character of God. Glory is the revelation and the demonstration of God's power, authority, and character. Sometimes this is shown in a very visible way. For example, in Luke 2 when the angels appeared to the, the shepherds and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them. God's man the manifestation of His power and authority and His character. Now typically when we think of glory, we think of God's authority and power. We think of the miracles that He has done. We think of His power in creating with just a word. But what we often overlook is that God's glory is also in His character. Who He is. Because His actions and His character can never be separated I've always found it fascinating that in the book of Exodus, when Moses is on Mount Sinai having a face-to-face -face meeting, as it were, with God, Moses makes one request. Lord, he says, 
Show me your glory. Now, with our common thinking, we would think at that moment God would give a tremendous display of his power. But this is what God says. I will make my mercy, my compassion, my loving kindness pass before you. God says, if you want to know my glory, the manifestation and demonstration of who I am, it is in my character. Even today, we will glorify people for their character. The Lord granted me a great illustration of this on Friday, and I love it when the Lord does that. It makes preparation a little easier. Friday afternoon, I was at the hospital, and Jody was sleeping in the recliner, and as I was sitting there, I turned on the PGA tournament taking place in San Francisco this weekend. That Friday, Rory McIlroy, who is one of the greatest golfers of this, this time period, hit a shot. Now, if you're not familiar with golf, there are three types of grass. There's a thing called the fairway that I've heard of, I've never seen or experienced. But it's that part that is smooth, it's trimmed short, and it's easy to hit off of. That's where you want to be. Then there's the rough, which for the PGA, they have two types of rough. There's the first rough, that's a grass that's about an inch and a quarter thick. And then they have the deep rough that is almost three inches deep. Roy McIlroy hit his ball into the deep rough. And it was so deeply hidden that one of the reporters walking along the side of the course actually stepped on his ball and pressed it deeper into the ground. Now, according to the rules, Roy McIlroy is allowed to pick up his ball and place it so that he can hit since the ball had been stepped on. Now, this is what caught my attention. When he picked up the ball and he placed it on the grass for some unknown reason, it stayed on top of the grass. It would have been like hitting off a tee. But Roy McElroy said, I don't feel right doing that because my original shot was not in that good shape. So he literally pushed his ball deeper in the rough. It was an act of integrity. And the announcers who were calling this tournament, they went on for minutes about what this said about this man, how great it was to see integrity in action. That is giving glory for character. God says, you want to see my glory? It is demonstrated in my character. So how does the cross show the character and the power of God? I would ask you in answer to that to turn to the book of Romans, if you will. Romans chapter 3. Because if glory refers to the demonstration of God's authority, power, and character, Jesus is pointing to the cross as the moment when both God and He will be most greatly glorified. Paul, in this familiar passage, describes how that can be. Romans 3.23 is very familiar. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But follow with me through verses 24 through 26. Not only have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So we are made right by the grace of God. That grace is a gift. We don't earn it. It is given to us. And that grace is given to us through Jesus' death on the cross. That's referenced by His blood. But Paul describes the death of Jesus as propitiation. That means a sacrifice given to satisfy the just wrath of God. 
So we see already that God's character is one that is gracious because God put Jesus forward, but he is also just. He is holy. Continue with me. This, that is the putting forward of Jesus as a propitiation to bring about redemption, was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It, that is the giving of Jesus to die on the cross, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The power of God is demonstrated in the resurrection, but also in the cross as his character is on display. That God is righteous. He judges sin. And he is just. That's what it refers to in verse 26. But he is just and the justifier. His character is just and he displays that character by justifying all who have faith in Jesus. God is redeemer. And he brings about redemption through the actions of the cross. God is a reconciler. And at the cross, he reconciles. So the cross displays the character of God as righteous and just in the actions of Jesus as he dies to bring about justification, redemption, and reconciliation. So we see God's character and actions most clearly on the cross. And it matters because the most crucial question we can deal with is, who is God? The atheist doesn't care about these things. The one who doesn't believe in God, this matters not. But deep down within each of us, we by default believe there is a God. And then the most important question is, what is that God like? We can't make him up to be what we want him to be. God is who God is. So that's why the glory of God matters. This reveals the one before whom we will stand. It reveals the one whom we serve. It reveals the one in whose image we are created. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus, after talking about glory in John chapter 13, then moves on to love. Verses 33 through 35. He says, little children, which is a term of endearment. It's only used here in the Gospel of John, but John must have liked this phrase because seven times in the book of 1 John, he refers to the disciples as little children. It's a way of saying, my dear children, it's showing love. And he says, yet a little while I am with you. And he's preparing them for the fact that he will be leaving them. This is a good thing. Later in the chapters ahead, we'll see where Jesus actually says, it's for your good that I go away. Because if I go away, I'll send the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to you. Then he says to them, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. They can't follow him to the cross. And at this point, not even in the resurrection and the ascension. But there's some notable differences. When Jesus said to the Jews in chapter 7 that you cannot come where I'm going, he said you'll, to the Jews, you'll not be able to find me at all. He told that group, you will die in your sins. But to the disciples, Jesus says, I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going away, but you will be with me. I'm going away, but I'm going to send you the paraclete to, to be your helper and comfort while I am gone. And while he is gone, he gives a command. What are the disciples to do while he is away? 
love one another. Verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. Now, in many ways, this commandment is not new. In the book of Leviticus 19.18, the command is given to love your neighbor, to love one another. So how is this new? I believe there are two ways. In the book of Leviticus, after the Exodus event, God says, because you are my people, because I have redeemed you, this is how you are to live. You are to live loving one another and loving your neighbor. John portrays the act of Jesus dying and his resurrection as the new Exodus, where he creates the new people of God under the new covenant. And in a new manner, he says then, you love one another. It is new because it is part of the new covenant that is brought about by Jesus in the new Exodus. And it's also new because there is a different standard. Look closely at verse 34. You love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The standard for the love we are to share with each other is Jesus. Remember, he started in chapter 13 by saying as the end was coming, he demonstrated his love to his disciples to the utmost by serving them and washing their feet and then dying on the cross. Later, he will tell his disciples there is greater love that no one has than he lay down his life for his friend. That is the love that is to exemplify the church to the world. Because Jesus, in a very shocking move, gives the world some authority. Look at verse 35. By this, loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In verse 35, Jesus gives the unbelieving world the right to look at the church and make a judgment as to if we are authentic followers of Christ or not. The world has the authority to look at us and say, that looks nothing like love. It's very shocking that that would happen. But what Jesus is bringing us back to is this. The true mark, the identifying mark of a true disciple to the world is love. The church has always sought ways to have way, means of identifying themselves to one another. Whether it be a, a cross or the ichthus symbol or even at one period of time a special haircut that designated you as a follower. Jesus says all those things are superficial. The true mark of a disciple is love. This is not in any way to minimize the importance of doctrine. What we believe is crucial. But to the world around us, Doctrine is not that important. But love is. Love is the doorway by which we can share true doctrine. After all, even the devil knows doctrine, but he does not have love. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul corrects the church by saying, Love. Miraculous signs will pass away. Tongues will be gone. Prophecy will be gone. But love will never be gone. And this love is to be observable. The world has to see it. So this means that our love is not just emotionalism. It's not just being in the South where we say, bless your heart or ain't that sweet. It's real 
observable actions that demonstrate love. I think in that way we do well. We serve one another, bringing food, praying, sending notes, things of those that are so important in demonstrating love. But we also need to recognize it's not just acts of service, but it's acts of reconciliation and forgiveness. That we extend grace to one another. In a world that is full of Twitter rants, unlocking on Facebook, and emails that are written in all capital letters, the church is to be different. We are to bear with one another graciously. We are to seek resolution. When it says to love one another, it doesn't mean there won't be disagreements. But it means when there are disagreements, we will seek ways we can have resolution, not necessarily victory, but we can seek to lay down our opinion for the sake of others. In many ways, it means applying what James wrote when he said we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That within the church, we seek to put the other person first and to overlook faults. Because according to Jesus, the world is watching. 33 years ago, I had a conversation that has stuck with me. I was a senior in high school. The fact that it has stuck with me shows the depth in which it is embedded in my heart because quite frankly, I can't remember some of the things I said yesterday. It was a conversation with a friend of mine. He was a junior, I was a senior. He professed faith in Christ, but he was becoming very, very disgruntled with things that were happening the way he saw Christians treating one another and David was on the edge of walking away from the faith of throwing up his hands and saying this Jesus stuff is not real he asked me a question Mark do you think that Christians can really love one another like the Bible says to David I replied yes I do his answer was this Herod you're living in a dream world am I I never want to lose hope that the followers of Christ will always strive to be obedient we may fail I know I have failed but I will not let failure stop me from trying to be obedient to what the Lord said. God has blessed Trinity in so many ways. And one of the ways is that this is a congregation that expresses love, but we must ever be vigilant. We must ever strive to put others first, to show love. Not to let our opinions and our view of what our rights are overtake the gospel. Because Paul of following Christ means taking up our cross and willingly laying down our rights and our opinions for the sake of others. When we do that, the world will see something different. And one day I'll be able to talk with my friend again. And I can say, David, look, it is possible. Will you help me make that happen? Would you bow with me in prayer right now?
before I pray, I want to ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to do inventory of your heart. Will you allow the Spirit to show you areas where you are not loving as you ought to? There may be a wound that you're carrying, a hurt. Somebody has hurt you. And the Spirit of God may be saying one or two things. The Spirit may be saying, overlook it. Love anyway. Or the Spirit may direct you to say, I need, you need to sit down with that person. Acknowledge the pain and seek resolution. That's part of loving. You may have been hurt so that you have built a wall around your heart. And the Spirit today is saying you need to open up. You may need to give grace to others. Whatever it is, I just ask you to be obedient. In just a moment, we're going to sing the hymn, Take the Name of Jesus with you. To take the name of Jesus means to love as he loved, to act as he would act. Heavenly Father, you would not give us this commandment if you would not enable us to fulfill it. We confess that we have failed. We have sinned against you and against one another because we have not always loved as we should. But would you, Father, please grant us grace Help us, Lord. Help us to truly love so that the world around us will see the truth that we are followers of Jesus. Grant this, Father, I pray in your holy name. Amen. Would you join me by standing, please?